Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 105th episode, I will be talking to Emily Fear, librarian, wrestling podcaster, and expectant parent, about made-for-TV movies and after-school specials. Along the way, we discuss the situations in which out your yinzer would come, we take a surprisingly deep dive into the ownership of a jar of buttons, and how a TV movie with no budget can fall ass-backwards into fashion verisimilitude. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? I'm Emily Fear, or M. Fear. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I, among other things, I am a public services librarian specializing in teen services. So I work with students in mainly grades 6 through 12, or ages 11 through 18 traditionally, and I do that in a medium, like a mid-sized public library in the uh, Pittsburgh region. In addition to that, I co-host a weekly podcast through the Pro Wrestling Torch called Grit and Glitter, which is all about the world of women's wrestling and the world of women in wrestling. So we talk a lot about like women's wrestling and women's wrestling promotions and all the like big high interest talent and storylines. But we also talk a lot about like the women involved in wrestling who may not be in ring, but are doing a lot of really fascinating things inside and outside of wrestling. So from wrestlers to ring announcers to commentators, writers, fan artists, and more, we talk to everybody and we really just love to examine the wide, wide world of wrestling through a specific lens of like the women who are involved in it. And in addition to that, I'm in Pittsburgh's preeminent two accordion and guitar band. I do a lot of other just like random little things around town, but that is primarily what I'm into. Plug the band camp. Plug the band camp. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I formed a band with actually a fellow librarian and my husband who plays guitar. She and I are accordionists and he is a guitar player and we are called Bitter Whiskers. We're kind of a weird blend of folk and dream pop and gothic Americana and all kinds of other things. You can find us on Bandcamp and our first official EP on there. So Bitter Whiskers on Bandcamp to find our recordings. As one who is a great fan of unconventional arrangements, two accordions and a guitar just like has my attention. Previous guest of the show, Marion Call, is known for having a typewriter as percussion on her shows and among other things and being an extremely talented songwriter. But that was the hook that initially got me to listen was, wow, a typewriter, that's cool. Uh, so yes, two accordions and a guitar, you have my attention fully. Yeah, I love it. There's only three of us, but I think we all bring something kind of different to the mix. So it allows for a lot of versatile styles to get blended. Tessa, our, I call her the lead accordion, honestly, because she was the one who taught me everything I know. She's got like the bulk of, I would say, the creative genius when it comes to interesting arrangements and kind of thinking about things and thinking about music and music structures and like various ways that like maybe wouldn't occur to my more classically pop 
minded brain and James offers a dynamic that's really like rooted in a lot of like grassroots rock and roll and bluegrass and folk music that like grounds us when Tess and I are doing more like ethereal or more like abstract ideas he has a really great way of like grounding us in a more rock sound that ends up making us sound like really palatable to a lot of people while still experimenting in his own ways and I am just kind of the like third wheel slash rhythm accordion slash I am a slave to like the three chord pop structure so I tend to write our like we, we joke that I write our hits but like I write our more like standard pop songs sorry I'm just marveling at the fact that of all of the adjectives I could come up with for an accordion I'm not sure ethereal would have been one of the ones that came <laughs> first to mind the ethereal accordion I like that Accordions are, in learning how to play the accordion and not having like any kind of classic instruction, I feel like I was able to understand it in less classical terms of the ways that we tend to think about accordion music, like polka and like waltzes and things like that, which we dabble in and we like to, we like to play with waltz structure, especially because it's really fun to play on an accordion. But there's a lot of different sounds you can get out of it. I mean, it's just a sound box. It's got a whole ream of chord buttons that you can play with it's got keys it's got all kinds of things that you can use to make a lot of sounds that you could describe in any number of ways from dissonant and kind of grungy to ethereal to floating to shrill like accordions are far more versatile than even I understood and you know my introduction to them was like many people like I was a kid who grew up listening to like my one of our family favorites in car rides or whatever was Weird Al. Like I very well understood Weird Al's way of playing accordion. And then when I was a teenager, I got into They Might Be Giants. And that's why I got an accordion because I found this band and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a rock star by playing the accordion. I'm going to go on (laughs) eBay and find an accordion. And then proceeded not really to learn how to play it so much as learn how to just like mess around with it. But I think because of that, I was given a lot of different influences in which to like explore and having like two bandmates to explore with has like really opened up my idea of what it could sound like. Yeah. There's something very particular about people who will approach an instrument kind of outside of the bounds of what it's usually doing. The first one that comes to mind is there was a band back in the day called Rasputina, which was a a band that was very cello forward. Yeah, you know. You know, Zoe Keating, who then went on to be a solo artist and did a lot of really interesting instrumental work. I remember like listening to an NPR interview with her and she was like, I had all this stuff in my head I wanted to write and it was all based around how I play the cello. And I was writing out sheet music and then I realized I had no particular like notation to be able to say, hey, I want you to hit the body of the cello in a particular way that it will make this thwack noise and then follow it with the heel of your hand like on the bottom to make sure that reverberates. I don't know how to write that. So maybe I should just play all this myself. (laughs) Like that idea of like, well, I know what I want to do and I know how to make the instrument do what I want to do. So I'm just going to do that. So uh, yeah, recommend that particular group of recordings is very cool and just to kind of part the curtain a little bit uh, listeners this is our second attempt at doing this because a massive technical hiccup the last recording so you're gonna you might hear us refer to things that were said in the previous episode because we want to call back to them because we had a really good conversation last time i don't think we should drop all of that but emily what's this about your mother like bringing back musical instruments from all over the world and just kind of giving them to you (laughs) So, oh yeah, I think I mentioned that when you were talking about the musician who uses typewriters as percussion, because my mother is a big supporter of both me and my brother and and all the music that we made or continue to make. My brother is actually much more of a professional musician than I am. He teaches music. 
but it also like plays professionally in like a in a jazz trio around town and like has been heavily like involved with music since before he was even a teenager so she always loved us being part of that she loved us you know investing ourselves in music she made us do all kinds of things whether I mean supported us in doing all the kinds of things whether it was marching band or symphony or my brother would spend entire summers away because he was doing drum and bugle corps which are like they are marching bands but specifically brass and drum based so they would do all kind of summer long tours all around as a result though she also is just a frequent like traveler and likes to go to flea markets like a lot of retirees one of her big like side hobbies is finding us weird and random instruments that we can add to our weird and random collections and as a result like I know my brother has many different types of drums because his main instrument is drumming he's mainly a drummer so she'll get him any type of drum that he doesn't already have whether it's hand drums or large bass drums or some kind of electronic drums or kinds of like various like percussive instruments or percussive tools to the point where he has politely asked her to (laughs) maybe check with him first before bringing anything else into it. One notable occasion was she found a, in some kind of import store, she found a set of bagpipes that she gifted him. And we were a little concerned about the sketchy origins of these bagpipes and the fact that with bagpipes, you have to like breathe in and out of them and Mm -hmm. uh, getting a used set from a random (laughs) import store might not be the best for your respiratory health. Just a casual plague vector. Yeah, you know, just we should recommend to her that maybe she should refrain from any instruments that we that required the use of our like lungs and mouth. Yeah, as a result, I have also got I have a mountain dulcimer. I have been given a auto harp that I desperately want to learn how to play and just need to get it restrung. She has given me over the years just all kinds of random things. One of which I actually actively use in my band, a Glockenspiel. That is actually a marching glockenspiel, but works just like any other like set of bells and has ended up actually becoming kind of like my second instrument in the band. Whenever I'm not playing accordion, I'm usually playing that. So yeah, thanks to my mom. Like she has definitely helped flesh out our sound. A marching glockenspiel. It's like I can picture it, but also those are two words that don't really go together. You know, kind of like hearing, oh, it's a military tea set. <laughs> Well, it's a, it's like a, it's what would be called like a liar. So uh, L-Y-R-E. I didn't realize this. So we're at a gig and we don't have a stand for it. We're hunting around for chairs that we can like prop it up on. And this guy from another band is like, oh, hey, just so you know, like I have something that you can use. And eventually he, he either had it on him or like we run into him later and he shows us what he was talking about. And it's this like big, like plastic cup on a belt. And I'm like, <laughs> what? what in the world he's oh yeah you just stick it you stick the end of it in there and then you hold it and you can play it and i thought he was crazy i thought he was just like (laughs) joking around or like this is something he jerry rigged and he's just like this crazy creative genius but i'm thinking there's no way that's gonna work for me i look it up later and i realize that i have a marching set of bells i have this like glockenspiel but it's like a liar shape and that is actually the thing that he showed us is a homemade like a diy version of what people will do with professional like marching liars will do like they have like it's actually it's more structured than what he showed us but it's basically like a holster on a belt and his was basically a holster on a belt you hold it with one arm and you play with the other it cracked me up because when he showed it to me i thought he was insane but it turns out i'm playing it in the wrong way See, I'm I'm just picturing like like a steady cam rig or like one of the smart guns from Aliens, you know, just with a tiny glockenspiel in the middle of it. It kind of looks like that. It really does. And if anyone wants to know what it looks like, just like look up Marching Liar and you'll see it. It's yeah, it looks like some weird assault weapon. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very cool. All right, well, let's start with the basics, Emily. Whereabouts did you grow up? Well, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I actually grew up not that far from here. I was born in Virginia, but we moved to the like Allegheny County, Pittsburgh region when I was like three or four. So I basically count myself as a lifelong Rust Belter. Based on where I live now, we bought our house in 2014. I live kind of closer to home than ever. We live in the city, but like we live in like the south end of it. And I grew up in what is called like the South Hills area of the region. I kind of live not that super far from where I grew up. Cool. And this is something we didn't go over last time, but I wanted to take the opportunity. I had another Pennsylvanian on recently, and I was then given the regional differences between Yins and John. So ah. so Pittsburgh is Yins territory, yes? Yes, yes. We are very much Yins territory. Yins is what is like our form of y'all, or like it's our inclusive like group pronoun. I used to reject it as because like Yinzer has been like a term that is used in this area to refer to somebody who's like kind of a more like working class and like kind of like the Pittsburgh version of like, I don't want to use like an insensitive term. So I'm trying to think of like how to say it carefully, but it's like a way to refer to someone in a derogatory manner as like working class or like low class. I always associated with, I had a couple of friends from a forum way back who would proudly refer to themselves as Yinzers and they were the sort of people who would paint their faces to go to hockey games. Yes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. That would be like Yinzer behavior. So like there's a whole like Yinzer dialect. There's kind of an accent to it too. As I got older, I appreciated it more and more because a lot of the language, all, a lot of the Yinzer slang and a lot of like the way of speaking that comes from that is from the, the culture of like mill and steel work that is like of our industrial past in Pittsburgh. So like men would go to the mills, they would go to the steel mills, they would work in like coal, they would come out and you know, they had these really, really long days that led to kind of a doctored form of speech that was like abbreviated and allowed them to like express themselves much more like simply than and less than like directly than they would have to otherwise. So as I got older and less like, and I guess like less snobby in my thinking, I realized that like so much of what I was rejecting of this idea of like yinzer and yins and et cetera, was rejecting like the industrial roots of like, the labor roots of the region that I grew up in. And so like, I realized that that was kind of a bad mentality to have. And also yins is just super useful. Like saying y'all when you're a northerner always strikes me as disingenuous and kind of weird and i can't say jean like i don't i just doesn't like <laughs> your body rebels <laughs> yeah and also i feel like jean is like to me like not specific enough because i think it can refer to a lot of different things like wait so you're saying that john isn't real specific <laughs> i mean it's like it's not, it's not a specific john it's just a regular john you know it refers to, yeah, because I think that they use it to refer to, like, people, places, and things. So it's like... Yeah, any noun, yeah. Any group of nouns, whereas yins is specifically about people. So the same way you would say y'all, you would say yins want to go bowling or, like, yins want to go watch wrestling. Like, Jean could be used in a little bit less of a structured way. So I don't know. I just, yeah, don't want to be anti-Philadelphia, but, like, it's never been... Never been one that I could reach for. It was funny because back in the day when I was talking to these people, I was like, this seems like such a weird and very specific thing that it, and it felt entirely unnatural to me. I'm like, how would that even work in a sentence? And then I was listening to all the Australians who work around me talk. And like, uh, I have a coworker named Jenny and bless her heart. Jenny is a huge supporter of the Canterbury Bulldogs football club. And I'll know when her team has won because she will come in and the people who made fun of her the last time her team lost, she will like walk over to where their desks are. And she's like, and my team won this week. So you can all eat dirt. And I heard that <laughs> and I went, that's basically a yins. That, that's a use like, cause yous guys is very much a, an Australian thing. 
and it's very much an Australian working class thing. And so hearing, yeah, and these guys can all eat dirt. And I'm like, suddenly it makes sense. It was like a light dawned on me. I'm like, oh, is that how it works? I mean, you could say that exact sentence, but with like the Steelers evolved and Yins, and that would be like a perfect Yinzer. I won't try to do the Yinzer accent. And it, it does like Pittsburgh. There is a Pittsburghese accent that I won't try and replicate because I'm actually like, I'm notoriously bad at it. Like <laughs> I get made fun of if I try because I, I do not sound good at it. But I have friends who like, especially I have a one friend in particular who like, you know, she was raised by two pretty diehard, like very, very stereotypical Yinzers. And especially when she's had like a beer or two, the out her Yinzer would come. And like, it wasn't even like putting on the voice. It would just come out of her, like in like a natural, natural way in a way that I could never like affect. And partially because I think my mother was from Johnstown and then relocated to like the DC area. So like she never really had that dialect to begin with. So we weren't really raised with it in any way that wasn't like kind of pseudo just like around us, but not internalized. Yeah, I love any kind of accent that will come out with like a beer or two or like maybe an extra six hours of exhaustion. Yeah. I had a friend who was from Tallahassee, Florida, and you would never know that she was from anywhere south of Mason-Dixon, except for the fact that you would hear every once in a while she'd be tired instead of tired. And it would be like, you kind of like everyone would go, ah, 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 you just did the thing. <laughs> You know, and like you probably didn't even yeah. notice like nope. that's probably one of those things that just slips on and like you don't even think about it it's like hearing someone refer to something to you know someone who helps you in court as a lawyer and i was like oh <laughs> hitting the h in a wh a win yeah small things like that i think movies have like brainwashed us into thinking that everyone with an accent has an incredibly strong accent when in fact it's yeah it's little things like that because the world is a cosmopolitan place yeah, I really appreciate when shows and movies do that well in a way that's like not pronounced. Like it does feel like so often it's like if someone is from New England, they have a hard New England accent or if they're from any like any country has one. And what gets on my nerves is because it does diminish differences in accent and differences in speech, even via country. Like for so long, especially in American films, because our country is, has such a xenophobic strain to it, so many countries would be represented by one type of accent. Right. So like mm -hmm. if it was somebody from England, they had a specific British accent and that was the British accent. Whereas like we understand that, like even in just in the UK and in, in Great Britain, like there is any number of different regional dialects and accents that you're going to encounter some far, far different than what we've been like put in the movies. But like everyone speaks the King's English and the that like specific type of like more, I would say like a particular level of British accent that is indicated with like, I don't know, maybe royalty or wealth or, or whatever. But it's definitely the, the accent that we were trained on for so long. Yeah. And it's because that's the accent that actors were trained to use for clarity. Just like, for example, if you go back to any movie from like, the 50s and 60s in the US, everyone sounds like they're about to call everyone around because we're going to have drinks on the yacht. <laughs> you know, because that was what was taught as this is what you do to sound high status. And this is what you do to sound clear. And because of that, it's, it's like this never ending cycle, where you end up with an accent that is not even the nearest approximation of what actual people were speaking at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do, I have a particular fondness for that, like, kind of stilted 40s, 50s way of speaking in those films, especially when you get into like like the comedies, the really like fast paced, like screwball, uh, yeah. yeah, the screwball comedies, because I love the way that that particular form of delivery works with that particular form of like dialogue style. Just I love how like 
how snappy it all sounds. I used to imitate that a lot, like, because it's just, it's a wonderful, like, thing that, like, went out of fashion as more naturalized forms of speech became more popularized in, like, the 60s and 70s, as American cinema in particular got grittier, influenced by, like, French cinema and other countries. We were able to, like, leave that style behind. I kind of miss it. Like, every once in a while when a movie dabbles in it, like, they are doing some kind of experimental thing that allows for Mm -hmm. them to, like, play with that. I'm always interested to see how it works out because it's fun it's just it's a fun style that works for that era of film in particular yeah it's something that i really love about uh do you know the thrilling adventure hour yeah yeah it's wonderful like it's so wonderful to hear that and it's so great for like an audio for for like a podcast yeah because you can cut it as fine as you need to it can be as quick or as slow as as required especially the beyond belief stuff with paul f tompkins and paget brewster they absolutely nail the patter of that very fast-paced kind of thin man era it's like watching brian michael bendis write in a, a comic book there will be 15 little balloons interspersed and alternating back and forth because these people will be bouncing off each other and i remember i was talking to a friend about it and it goes from it's the change from reading lines to it being dialogue it makes it far less quotable but also makes it very funny and quick and just the, a whole piece rather than it just being oh that's one funny line that they said yeah no precisely and they i mean they're two of the like just best best performers of that particular style working today Padgett Brewster is so good at it Paul F. Tompkins has been doing that voice off and on like in various entities for the length Mm -hmm. of his comedy and he's just it's it works so well for him and I know that just his outward style in general like he embodies that speech even in just his like fashionable presentation and I think it even has an effect on the way that he speaks when he's doing less formally and his comedy is so interesting because of it. When Thrilling Adventure Hour came down to Sydney, I was fortunate enough to be dragooned into helping shoot it. I got to go to the first performance for free and then shoot the second one at the bigger theater. And yeah, he turned up in a green plaid suit I have not seen outside of a Silver Age X-Men comic. Like, you know, the kind where they're not even drawing the lines to look like lines. They have literally just printed a plaid outline on the comic book, and it stays the same, like, canting whether or not someone is turned towards one way or the other. And I told him that. I'm like, that's an X-Men suit, man. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love. I love somebody who makes outward choice, especially with male fashion, because it's just, it's not something you see a lot with male comedians, especially, I'm just going to say. So I love the way that his choices are very particular and like clearly hint at the fact that like he has an aesthetic that he enjoys, that he just absolutely loves to cultivate. It's not a joke. It's his suits fit impeccably. He looks really good in them. They can be kind of jarring or loud at points, but they're never meant to be wacky. They are style. They are literally meant to be like his fashion expression. And I really like that. And it just, it adds something to him. Clearly that dynamic is something that is entrenched in just the way his worldview and the way that he does his own stand-up comedy too. It just... Yeah, clearly, like, through and through, there is an aesthetic that has cultivated a particular point of view. Yeah, and folks, if you like this kind of conversation, I would recommend Brett White's podcast, Enlighten My Loafers. Uh, Brett White, former guest of the show, writer for Decider.com, eminently fashionable gentleman, actually has started since the time he's been on here a podcast where all he does is talk to fashionable people about the choices they've made. I know he's had Erica Henderson for the artist for Squirrel Girl and lots of other things has been on recently. Kelly Sue DeConnick's been on, Adam Conover, Jared Harris. So yeah, definitely go check that out. Hi, Brett. Love you. Constant inspiration. But yeah, listeners, if you want to go check that out. So growing up in sort of the outer Pittsburghian area, what sort of kid were you? I guess I was 
always a pretty talkative kid, a pretty social kid, a pretty creative kid. I was very talkative. I had a reputation in my family of being like a little too chatty. At some point when I got older, my mother confessed that she was afraid that I was going to grow up and think my name was actually Shut Up Emily because of how often <laughs> her and my brother would tell me to, to stop talking. <laughs> and it's funny to think of like telling your child to shut up now would like you'd never do that. But I mean, give my mother a break. It was late 80s, early 90s. So like it was a different time. At the same time, I like to kind of willfully isolate myself because I don't, I mean, I'm not entirely sure because I was a social kid and I like to play with other kids. But I also had like an intense desire to play by myself for a lot of times. My playing, when, especially when I could do what I wanted to do, was like, I think particularly what it's all is for it because it was hard to explain what I was doing to anybody for anyone else. So I would draw pictures and have stories in my mind and like draw these pictures and spend hours drawing like what would probably be kind of considered comics, but they weren't really comics because they didn't have any clear storyline outside of what was going on in my brain as I drew them. I had weird obsessions with like, you know, meaningless material artifacts. Like I had a jar of buttons I played with <laughs> and <laughs> like I had a jar of buttons I played with in like the nineties. I wasn't like a pioneer child collecting buttons. <laughs> I'm not like 200 years old. So I work with students, like I said before, I work with teenagers and they were all talking about their childhood toys and they were one day and they were like, Ellie, what did you play with when you were a little kid? Expecting me to say like, <laughs> And I told them that I had stuffed animals, I had dolls or whatever, but I couldn't help myself. I was like, well, I had a jar of buttons. <laughs> and they looked at me with the weirdest mix of like contempt and oh confusion God. and pity. And this is coming from like a group of like 13 year olds. And I'm like, I never want them to look at me this way again. I need to stop ever telling anyone about my jar of buttons. Oh my God. I'm just, I'm just like imagining this melange of feeling and it's like delivered at the withering level that only an early teen can do right well but i mean i gotta say i feel kind of bad for them because they're never gonna know the joy of like just like <laughs> the, the simple joy of having a large jar of buttons of various types and like these were cool buttons like i need to i need to emphasize but these were like these were like vintage buttons some of them were your more basic stuff some of them were really big some of them had like neat designs on them or they had like rocks embedded in them or jewels or whatever like they weren't just like a button you would on a regular shirt although there were probably a couple of those too <laughs> but like I feel like a lot of kids in their early childhood they do focus in on like very small things like they'll have an obsession with a particular type of toy or like they're very like obsessed with some like mundane thing that's out in the environment like my friend has a kid who loves mailboxes just loves like <laughs> loves to look at all the mailboxes when they walk in the street just like he points out all the mailboxes but I didn't grow out of that phase probably still haven't quite grown out of that phase honestly but like I didn't really grow out of that phase until I was way older so I was like a 10 year old kid like playing with a jar of buttons because I thought they were cool and I don't I can't even explain why I just thought they were I don't know how I got in possession of this jar of buttons but because of that and because it was like I mean, imagine, so it's bad enough to be an adult telling 13-year-old kids that when you were a kid, you played with buttons and have them look at you like that. But I'm an adult, so I'm a little bit more secure in myself than I used to be. But imagine being a child and trying to explain to another kid who has, like, interests that are not weird and hard to explain, trying to explain to them, like, oh, I have this button jar and it's really cool. You should look at these buttons with me. <laughs> 
See, I can't believe that we talked for an hour and 20 minutes last time and we never brought up your childhood jar of buttons. See, I'm tempted to pivot this entire episode around to the childhood jar of buttons because this is great. I feel like it'd be so sad. At some point, your listeners would just be like, I can't listen to this woman and her jar of buttons anymore. This is just making me want to weep. That's the thing, though. I mean, like, I can think about, like, I was thinking, like, what's my equivalent? And I'm like, every kid has kind of that box of stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, oddball things that you had. Like, I had a little, it was like, like almost like a mini footlocker or a toolbox. It had a handle on the short end, and it was sort of shaped like a fridge. My dad would call it my neat stuff box. And I had, like, I'd put stickers around the outside. It was bright yellow. I remember I had, like, labyrinth stickers, even though I had no memory of seeing labyrinth. So someone had bought me labyrinth stickers at some point. And, yeah, I had the little latch on the side, and I'd flip it open. It would just be just random stuff that I had. Like, I remember I had, like, a dried seahorse in there that someone had given us. Or I had, like, you know, a little, like, a a woven bird's nest that someone had found and given to me. And just, like, yeah, little things, like, you know, a semi-precious stone that was a tiger eye. So it was, like, dark brown. It had a gold band through it. And like I was thinking, like just little things like that. And yeah, I honestly don't think, you know, a particularly cool button would have been out of place in my neat stuff box. I think kids have collections like that all the time. It's why things like caboodles and various like plastic containers get marketed to kids so often. Like they even do that now. Like it might not look the same as it did when we were kids, but I mean, kids like to sort, they like to keep, they like to collect. And I think about the buttons and I'm like, okay, so the buttons are silly. Like it seems weird, but then, you know, people treat coin collections and stamp collections and card collections and all kinds of things very legitimately. Mm-hmm. So I guess in my mind when I was a kid, I was like, I didn't really see the difference between like a kid having a baseball card collection and me having a button collection. They were yeah, yeah. like, theoretically, the baseball cards were worth something, right? And they were attached to something very specific and a larger interest in baseball potentially. But I knew a lot of kids who just had baseball cards because that was something that you collected. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even seem to like, care that much about baseball itself and they weren't selling these cards for anything so my buttons seemed just as worthwhile as their flimsy little cardboard cards and i'll say this as a few a person who had a few friends who collected baseball cards sorry guys they're not worth anything because you would look at them all the time because you were really interested in oh and secretly by the way guys sorry a sports nerd is still a nerd you're still one of us. I've, I've talked about this with my friend Hub. You know, if you're obsessing over batting averages and rookie cards and stuff, it's the same as someone going out and trying to find the first appearance of a, a character in a comic book. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's the truth. Absolutely. I think like a lot of kids who got who grew up kind of getting picked on from like the so-called like jocks or whatever. I grew up with an idea that like being into sports made you aggressive and macho and mean in a way that like would eliminate you from nerd status. And then getting older and realizing that there was a whole realm of like people who are really into sports, people like my husband, who are like sports nerds, who are like mm-hmm. stats nerds. And appreciating that there is a way to be involved in the sport that doesn't just like focus in on its most like aggressive, like so-called masculine traits, et cetera. And baseball is often a like a key place to find a lot of those like more stats obsessed fans. But yeah, it's, it's nerdery. Like it's totally nerding out mm. when you get obsessive about like a roster and, and their averages and their stats and like, you know, projecting the seasons based on who is starting and who has been brought in and recruited, et cetera. Like that's super nerdy guys. Like that yeah. is. <laughs> I hate to tell you, like my stepdad, who I've known for many years now, who I originally met as just like, he's sort of a small town guy and he worked as a machinist in a paper mill and was, you know, fairly straightforward in his interests and would listen to CBC radio, preferred that to watching TV and just kind of, you know, your normal kind of working class older guy. And then when he retired, finally, you know, married my mom and they moved in together and 
he had to go through and sort out his massive collection of like wax cylinder records, his, his Victrola machines and pinball parts and like all these things. And I'm just listening going like, how did I not know anything about any of this? <laughs> this is, like he, cause I collect analog cameras and shoot with them. And he, one Christmas just gave me like a dozen old cameras, including one that he, like his father had taken to France when he was an engineer in world war two and, you know, going out and finding mines and they would take pictures of the survey stuff. And he only told me that maybe a year after he'd given it to me. And I was like, I had gone through and found some junk in there. And I was like, oh, I can't really shoot with this. You know, I'll trade it in at my local shop. And I'm very glad I did not trade in the one that went to war with his father. Yeah, you no. Know? <laughs> yeah no, absolutely. All right. Well, we've been, we've been talking for ages about your button. So we have to like actually pivot into the topic of the episode now. <laughs> so initially when you came on, you gave me a few topics, but the one that really stuck, you wanted to talk about after school specials and made for TV movies. Yes. In addition to my lifelong obsessions with all kinds of weird things, whether they be buttons or more recently in my adult life, wrestling, I, I was very much a latchkey kid, which for anyone unfamiliar with the term, like meant that I was a kid who would come home from after school and like I had a key and I would, I would basically watch myself for a couple hours. My mom was very permissive as far as TV watching goes to the point where like she watches TV, like has the TV on all the time. And again, guys, 90s, different time. So don't judge her too harshly. <laughs> and she was like a, a working mom who worked like 60 plus hours a week provide for me and my brother so like she did a really good job as a mom but I did watch a lot of television my interest in tv movies has just been probably from when I was pretty young to like even through now like I still love to watch like a silly lifetime trashy made for tv movie but I think it began because during the 90s they were still running on ABC the occasional after school special that would like usually air between like four and five. And like, there was like hour long, like mini movies basically that were like topic of the week type things. They started doing them in I think the seventies, but they were still running as of like the late nineties. They don't do them anymore. And I think as they were phased, they kind of got phased out because of things like Lifetime TV movies taking over the spot for that type of material, but being able to present it slightly more salaciously because the after school specials pretty much were all fairly wholesome. They could deal with pretty like deep or dark topics, but they stayed fairly light in tone and nothing as far as explicit material. Once the segue goes to like more of the like made for TV movies that would be shown at night or on the Lifetime Network, those get a little racier by TV terms. Yeah, there's definitely, I think there's a real divide because if you think about it, they're trying to do the same things. They're attempting to send a message about a particular story that is meant to be either outside of the experience or at least like you know tangential to the experience of the person watching where it's like i may not have had this thing happen to me but i've been close enough to it where i want to see how it plays out you know and i mean yeah it's something we didn't touch on last time but i was thinking of all of the anti-drug psa episodes of cartoons that i would see uh, yes you know your cartoon all-stars to the rescue or that particular episode of Brave Star where they had a kid get hooked on pills and actually die at the end, which seemed <gasps> horrific. My God! Yeah, I mean, most of the time the kid, like, you know, comes good at the end, and so you're like, oh, well, he learned a valuable lesson. Yeah, they straight up killed the kid in Brave Star. Brave Star was weird. Oh, my God. That's, yeah, because that is not something, you will see very little death in an after school special. You will see a lot of like redemption stories. You'll see a lot of recovery stories. You'll see a lot of like rehabilitation just in the nick of time type of stories, but very little like this kid actually dies from this. Yeah, totally. 
So, like, thinking of of the made-for-TV, the the Lifetime movie thing, I mean, much like the Hallmark movie, encompasses a particular space. And dare I say, I could compare it to professional wrestling, where it's like, the thing that is happening can be the thing that is happening, and you don't have to shy away from that. You know, the, the 30 Rock joke is, you know, the woman who was shot in the face by her dog. And then there's Jack going, why does the dog have the gun? Get the dog away from the gun! But really, what it comes down to is situations like the one I remember very, very, very specifically is shortly after Jurassic Park, the girl who played Lex in Jurassic Park was in a movie about, you know, I think it was, yeah, being like sexually assaulted by her coach and having to keep it quiet. Or it's like, oh, God, it has been a long time since I thought about that. But this idea of this dangerous situation couched in a normal life, and it's a warning to those of us who are in normal life that you you have to keep an eye out for this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's an inflated sense of like a real problem too, often with these movies. The 30 Rock example is really excellent because like he's watching that TV movie that's based on what apparently happened to an like a congresswoman, which is hilarious that she gets like shot in the face by a dog. So that's like a heightened parody of what a Lifetime movie often is, which is taking something that happens that is like true and reported and things that happen in high school or in small town communities or et cetera, et cetera, like all kinds of things that are maybe based on some form of like real problem and then just slightly inflating it to a degree, just like putting a dramatic soap opera-y like arc onto it. So the swimmer who has anorexia that leads to a car crash that kills her best friend. Like there are, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like problem on top of problem on top of problem. I just actually, cause I just got the bug of after we were talking about this the first time, I wanted to rewatch a couple find whatever ones I could. And I just watched a really great one from like 96 that stars Jenny Garth. The queen of 90s TV movies is of course Tori Spelling. But there were a lot of people in those like teen shows in the 90s. So they all got their TV movies. Tori Spelling, Kelly Martin. But Jenny Garth got one called Without Consent. And it is a perfect example of what we're talking about. A movie about parents who are having difficulty dealing with their teenage daughter, who seems to be just like kind of floundering and like didn't take the SAT and is not following through on any of her college plans. And it's just for whatever reasons, unexplained and and hinted at, she just doesn't have much of a direction. And it's driving her type A mother in particular, like crazy. But it gets inflated to the point where they're like commit her to a rehabilitation center. Oh, my God. Because that's not an overreaction. Well, yeah, and like for a um, substance abuse problem that she doesn't really seem to have. Like mm-hmm. they have a fight. She goes to visit her deadbeat boyfriend who gives her a bunch of beers. She drinks the beers. She drives. And of course, like she gets into an accident. And that's what they decide that she's an alcoholic. But she's not really an alcoholic. She messed up because she was upset. But they sent her a rehabilitation center. So like that alone is like a high escalation, right? Mm-hmm. But the movie isn't really about that. The movie is about the fact that the rehabilitation center that they send her to is actually like a scam. (laughs) Oh, no. They're like gaslighting slash oppressing their patients and abusing them so that they remain patients for longer and longer so that the center can just continue like racking in the insurance money and committing fraud. So like, there you go. That's a perfect example of like, we are talking about a family drama that is actually like a conspiracy thriller. (laughs) I think that was actually the plot of a Batman Beyond episode, I think. <laughs> like, like, honestly, that's how cartoonish it is. It's funny to me because I am very upfront about the fact that I am very anti-insurance company. And, like, mm-hmm. I, in the States, we have private insurance, basically, for anyone who can afford coverage. 
and it's awful. And I believe in a naturalized system, it is a single payer system. But it's so funny. There's a strain of like things that are involved with insurance fraud, especially from like the 90s. And I feel like it pops up a lot in a weird variety of places where it's like the truest victims here are the insurance companies that are paying these fraudulent companies. (laughs) I mean, the rehab center in this movie is not the good guy, but... I'm also like, eh, whatever, the insurance companies are evil too. Like, everybody's evil here. Get that girl out of there. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right, especially like reframing it as, oh, well, these are frivolous lawsuits in order to, you know, get one over on people and get rich. I mean, it's an old joke. It's like, oh, yeah, every, you know, comedy family has the uncle who gets hit by cars and sues the drivers. And it's like, yeah, no, it doesn't actually work that way. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. And. Legal fees, et cetera, often mitigate any kind of gain you would have if you had like a frivolous lawsuit like that. So it's like, (laughs) so yeah, it doesn't really happen quite in the way. But like, so that movie in particular is like a really good example of like taking what are some like genuine concerns and domestic traumas and like the issue of parents and children failing to communicate and possibly, you know, underage drug use or alcohol abuse or whatever, but like just pushing it to 11, really like jamming on the drama button and just being like, what else can we add to this story? And then the details are so, oh my God, it's so good. Because I just watched this, it's so fresh in my mind. But like there is a lawyer that they seek out help from to get their daughter and get some justice against this rehab center. They seek her out and like this lawyer is investigating these rehab centers and literally works for a office called Teen Law Office. (laughs) Like, go find Nora at the teen law office. Oh my God. <laughs> and I love it. It's like, they were like, uh, what do we call it? What do we call it? Uh, I don't know. It's just, it does work with teens. It's law. Teen law office. There you go. It's, yeah, we don't have time for this. We have a story to break. We have way more important things to do. We, we've got dialogue to write for Paul Sorvino. Paul it's Sorvino like, is in this movie. Oh, bless Paul Sorvino. It's kind of like, I love that kind of stuff when, you know, people speak another language and they're able to spot that, you know, the sign in another language is complete junk. The example I remember is my ex spoke German. We were watching, I think it was Spy Game which is a movie I love. And at one point, Brad Pitt like slews his car to the side of the road and runs into a bar to kind of hide in the crowd. And the sign above the bar literally says corner bar. And she looks at me, she's like, there's no way a bar would be called corner bar. Not even like a winking retro dive bar would call itself the corner bar. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, the closest I can think of, like, we have a bar in Pittsburgh called Lou's Little Corner Bar, and that's about as close as you can get. Like, corner bar is as lazy as you can go. They should have stitched the corner and just been like, bar. (laughs) There you go. That's what most places do. It's like how you go into a bar and order, yeah, give me a beer. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> Although we do now have like a mini chain of, oh, they're terrible. In Pittsburgh, we have like these like pretty bougie bars. And the name is literally Dive. Oh, no. Dive Bar. You guys. First of all, you can't name your bar Dive. Second of all, you can't name your bougie $8 beer bar Dive. Like you can't name <laughs> a bar that has like a built-in fireplace in the wall, postmodern, like sleek furniture, etc. You can't name that Dive. Like you can't name any of that Dive. <laughs> Have some self-respect. Dive bars aren't named dives. It's also like those places that try to be clever and will like refer to themselves as the good Thai place around the corner. And they're like, oh, people are going to say, let's go to that good Thai place around the corner. And it's like, no, they won't. They'll look at it and they'll go, that's dumb. And they won't go to your Thai place. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, or they'll go to you because you're close enough and like whatever, you have like a decent drink special and they can like, there's space there, but like they will never talk about your bar in a way that is proud or being like, my favorite bar is this bar. They will just go there. There are many bars that are like that where you're like, I'm not going to advocate for you, but I will patronize you on occasion. (laughs) I'm very good at patronizing people. (laughs) Anyway, that would be stepping away from the Thai restaurant rule, which is every name has to be a pun on the word Thai. Like there are several restaurants in Sydney called Titanic and bless their little hearts. That's a really good tie back to the TV movie thing, though, because a lot of them are like kind of punny names. Oh, yes. I guess they're kind of puns. They're not like really super clever puns, but they're like wordplay in a way that's like one of my favorites is dying. to. I was, I like, was just about to say, is this where we pivot into talking about dying to belong? Because we have oh to talk God. about dying to belong. Dying to belong is my favorite. I'm so glad we're going to start there because I think we ended there before. And I feel like we need to start with dying to belong because yeah. dying to belong. It's actually my white whale because I can't find it. I'm sure I'm having searched hard enough, but like I've only found clips and stuff on YouTube. A lot of these movies, if you want to see them, you can see them for free and easy. Without consent, I watched on YouTube not more than an hour ago. You can find Death of a Cheerleader. You can find a bunch of these. But Dying to Belong has been kind of hard to find. And I think it's because they use a lot of copyright music. And so it's Uh. difficult to get. They use the song, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover by Sophie B. Hawkins. (laughs) I think more than once in the movie like we paid for this we are getting our money's worth it is gonna be every love scene between mark paul gosler and hillary swank we are gonna have damn i wish i was your lover and it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not we are using this song 14 damn times <laughs> yeah i think we should take a moment to just talk about the level of cast in this movie because you mentioned hillary swank you mentioned dark-haired post saved by the bell the college years mark paul gosler also jenny van Oy from blossom six from blossom Sarah Chalk from Roseanne. They've got a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people in this movie that have like actual like bona fides in television. For L Ward fans, Laurel Holloman is in it. It's got a pretty decently stacked cast and you can find that in these like late 90s TV movies. But yeah, so pre-Oscar winning Hilary Swank stars as a college freshman who is like a journalism student kind of to support her roommate, Jenna Von Oy, slash just because they like pledge a sorority that while they pledge, there's like these horrible like initiation and hazing rituals, one of which ends up like killing Jenna Von Oy's character. And this was during the height of like hazing and initiation like fear. There had been like in the news, like one or two like incidents where like fraternity or sorority hazing had led to somebody's like either hospitalization or death. And so there was a slew of TV movies and TV shows and things that were dedicated to like Oh, they're hazing. But this takes it to, of course, an extreme. Hillary Swank uncovers a whole conspiracy that other people have died during these hazing rituals and that the sorority is covering it up. At one point, she's run off the road by, like, sorority sisters who are chasing her down. Like, again, it takes a thing that has actually occurred in the news and then just, like, pumps it full of steroids. Also, in looking down this cast list, I need to point out not to bring everything back to wrestling again, though it is, it is uh, you know, what you do in your off time. But... A lot of these names in these TV movies are very NXT names. For example, we have Drea Davenport, Shelby Blake, Paige Tashman. Like you expect if you brought someone in, suddenly it's like, hey, you're Shelby Blake. Go out there and win the crowd. Yeah, like honestly, if I were to start a promotion 
and like the wrestlers needed like monikers, I would say let's start with the character names from various TV movies and work from there. They are really NXS names. Dre Davenport is such like, she's probably like a ritzy, like bourgeois, like fancy lady heel. Dre Davenport. Yes, that'll be good. Just blue blood name. The kind of person who would be like, like Regina George, nice to you while quietly cutting you down. It's like, oh, you think that would happen? Isn't that sweet? <laughs> and also, I feel like the same way that WWE goes about rebranding wrestlers and names kind of works in the same way that like TV movies often like script their characters in that like the name is supposed to kind of tell you the type of character that they are presenting right off the bat. So like Jennifer Oye's character is Shelby Blake. Shelby Blake is kind of mousy and quick and quick to try and ingratiate herself. And like that name, Shelby Blake, makes you think of that. Hilary Swank's character is named Lisa Connors. <laughs> Which is about the most like average name you could get. Oh, she's a nice person. She's, you know, your girl next door. I mean, there's another famous Connors from the like 80s and 90s. And that's Sarah Connors from The Terminator. Oh, there you go. So it's like linking it like, okay, so she's got a basic name, but she also is somehow like mentally we, we make the connection to like a badass woman who's going to like save the day in the same way that NXT kind of does that like spin the wheel name. I remember thinking about that during the brief time that ACH signed with NXT and they rebranded him as Jordan Miles. But I guess Jordan, like Michael Jordan and Miles, like Miles Morales, like... They're kind of just like blending a pastiche of like black male figures into a name. And that's kind of what they do. In that same way, I think a lot of TV movies do that with their characters in order to like kind of immediately establish, okay, so this person's going to be our hero and this person is going to be like our blue blood heel and et cetera. It works very yeah. similarly to wrestling. Yeah, totally. So Dying Kablong is one of my favorites. It features a lot of like really highly ridiculous drama. It features a very steamy, like, makeout in a library. It's one of my favorite things in both these movies that take place in high school and in college, where all of these people look like they're in their 30s. They're playing up, like, dramas and stuff, but, like, it's especially absurd in, in like, the high school movies. But in Dying to Belong, it's still kind of absurd because, like, Hilary Swank is, like, a college freshman, and she looks like she could be teaching college freshmen. <laughs> There's that one. There is No One Would Tell which is another really good one. And in, so I want to highlight the ones that have like 90s royalty in them because I just feel like it's very important. No One Would Tell has Candace Cameron. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Fred Savage. Fred Savage playing very against type. So if you were like me and you grew up watching Fred Savage like be adorable and precocious on The Wonder Years, you would be disturbed to see him in this movie where he is not just an abusive boyfriend, but like a killer abusive boyfriend. So he is responsible for the death of at least one young woman. And meanwhile, he's stalking and oppressing and abusing his girlfriend. And like, she can't tell anyone. And like, no one will believe her, etc. He's an abuser somehow. And it's just the least credible thing in the world. Like, you see him, you're like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. And listeners, if you're imagining a, I'm not even going to say jacked, a slightly muscular Fred Savage in like a muscle shirt while DJ from Full House with a bob wears his Leatherman jacket and like flinches away from him. You've got this movie. <laughs> yeah. If you are imagining a lot of like short sleeve slash like mock turtleneck tops, that is also this era. That's mm -hmm. very much this era. I love revisiting like 90s TV movies has like given me a complete new appreciation for 
the fashion that is on display because something I really like about TV movies is that their budget is kind of on par with what you would imagine a better produced like TV episode would be, but they have to do a whole movie out of it. It's clear that they don't have like extensive wardrobe. It feels more like instead of a like really high end version of something that is trendy, they're basically wearing like what is cool in that time. So they're wearing the nicest department store clothing that they could get. Or like the actors are wearing stuff that they brought from home even. As a result, you get a very authentic picture of what like that year that they made that movie, what that fashion note was. So if this movie is from 1996, you see every bit of 1996 aesthetic right there on the screen. It is not doctorated. It is not glossy. It's not like watching like a Gossip Girl or something. You are watching like people wearing the clothing of that moment. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like almost by accident, it gets this verisimilitude where instead of like you said, something like a Gossip Girl or even like a Buffy or, you know, a 90210, which is imagining what, you know, someone with unlimited money would do to dress like a cool person of the time and like filtering it down from above. Instead, people are actually just, like you said, wearing what they would wear and by accident being much more realistic and representative of what someone would wear at the time. And, you know, not everything is a bespoke, super cool thing. You might have people mixing and match with, like, one good item and a couple of, like, less cool items, like, you know, an actual person would. Yeah, absolutely. Or, like, you know, they're wearing what looks to be in signature 90s style. Like, a lot of the clothes are kind of sloppy-looking at points while still being on trend. So there's, you know, baggier jeans or very, like, tight, like, ribbed, like, cotton tops paired with something much baggier, like, less attractive-looking. And it's like, that's, you know, that's how the mix of styles works for that moment. And things tend to look a little bit more lived in because of it. And I actually kind of really appreciate that about TV movies. Like, it doesn't feel like they have an endless wardrobe budget. Yeah, and it, it sets it within the time in a way that they were probably trying to avoid, but works very well now. The example I always think of is, you know, watching a video that's like an instructional video at work or something, and you can tell exactly, like, to the month when it was filmed because of the particular style of low-rise boot-cut jeans that were being worn by just about everyone. And you can be like, that was November 2001. Thank you very much. <laughs> so much. And like, I actually really love a lot of like mid to late 90s fashion. So like, for me watching it is just like, oh my God, I love all the ways in which browns were topped on browns in the, in the <laughs> late 90s. All the like weird versions of like mesh on top of solid opaque tops and like it's just stripes and light wash jeans and oh my gosh i love yeah. so much of it why is that guy wearing a t-shirt with not one but two colored shirts over it two different colored shirts with different patterns and styles <laughs> yeah the boys fashion tends to end up being like the most confusing aspect of it where you're like especially the preppier it is the weirder it comes off because it just feels like we have to put him in a polo shirt with also another polo shirt on top of it and then also a letterman jacket and also maybe a leather jacket too <laughs> and we're going to give him some chains, but what sort of chains? Well, we're not really sure. It'd be those ones with like the plastic beads with like the little spikes in between them, but also like another chain. Like, but, but he's meant to be a tough guy. So we got to make it like a hardware store chain, even though that would like give him a rash on the back of his neck. But look, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Just sort something out. It'll, it'll work. It'll work. It does in some ways, yeah. because especially if it's like teenagers, it's like a lot of teenage fashion is making poor choices or thinking something looks cool at the moment. And it doesn't really, but like you do it and then you look back on those days and you're like, oh my God, why didn't someone tell me that that's what I look like? 
my, my favorite teen thing of, of fashion choices is always doubling down on something. So if something is cool, you will do that thing like more and more, which is why you see people with incredibly long or doubled up or complicated wallet chains in movies in the late 90s, where it's like, it's not just to have a wallet chain, but you have to have one that's long and one that's short, or like two that have been tied together with something and like with extra bits hanging off them. And it's like, you're going to take that and escalate it further, which is what teenagers do <laughs> until they get to a point where they look and they go, okay, this is ridiculous. Maybe I'll just like simplify the whole look. Well, so I highly recommend both the ones I've listed. I will shout out one more movie because I didn't get a chance to talk about this one the last time. And I think it's very necessary. It was a movie that actually got, I watched not on Lifetime, but on VH1. For some reason, for a while, VH1 kept playing this one. And I think it's because there's a lot of music in it. So it is the perfect blend of TV movie, college story, and alternative rock from the 90s story, a little movie called Friends Till the End, starring Shannon Doherty, another, of course, Beverly Hills 90210 alum. This movie is insane. It doesn't even pretend to be a, like, taken-from-the-headlines movie of the week type of movie. This girl is a sorority sister, is beloved. She is the lead singer of her rock band. This movie has at least one of the London brothers in it. It's so great. It's so great. She meets this young woman in a class who like helps her out with something and then this woman ingratiates herself with her and then her band and then slowly goes about like taking over her life and it is batshit there is so many like really silly and great knockoff 90s rock songs in this movie the fashion is (laughs) awesome the drama just gets escalated and escalated until like the villain has a meltdown on stage at the big battle of the bands so good is there at least some sort of like you know engineered public confession where she like admits to something and realize the microphone is on and everyone goes (gasps) yeah so i I mean i don't want to give away the ending guys but uh (laughs) i will say spoilers for friends to the end of 1997 (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know what? It goes places that you wouldn't expect. The villain supplants Shannon Doherty's character in the band that she founded. So it's like, it's real horrible. She also manages to kill somebody for some reason. (laughs) You find out that she's like kind of stalked her or blamed her for her life shortcomings for her entire life. So she's been working to this moment where she goes to college with Shannon Doherty's character and takes over her life. Like that was her big ambition. She takes her place in Shannon's band and then, like, on stage, for some reason, has, like, a mental breakdown that, like, indicates that she's actually, like, the one responsible for the murder of this random guy. And also all the gaslighting and things that she was doing to Shannon Doherty's character was were all her manufactured drama and, and lies and stuff. And, yeah, no, it's, it's real. It's real melodramatic. It's real soap opera-y. It is filled with bad music. It's so good. It's so, so good. I cannot recommend this movie enough. If I can find it, I will be watching it tonight. Well, I think that's a nice note to end on. So if you want to be friends to the end and hear about this single white femaling of a young Shannon Doherty, by all means, go and check that out. Now, Emily, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? The easiest place to find me and everything I'm about is on Twitter at ForkedPGH, F-O-R-K-E-D-P-G-H. Excellent. And if they wanted to follow the PW Torch? They can just go to PWTorch.com. If you are interested in Grit and Glitter, a podcast all about women's wrestling and the women in wrestling you just need to subscribe on your podcast catcher of choice subscribe to the pw torch daily cast we are the tuesday daily cast very cool all right well thank you so much for coming on the show emily i am going to go and fall into a rabbit hole of late 90s time capsule tv movies 
and probably come back wearing some sort of complicated wallet chain. Oh my gosh, please do. I would like to see this. <laughs> you remember the time when you were gone from Mars? I don't know if you knew that. Oh, it's there, playing cards, and you were intimate cigars. And she never told me her name. I still love you, the girl from Mars. Sitting in a dreamy days by the water's edge. On a cool summer night Fireflies and stars in the sky Gentle glowing light From your cigarette Thank you very much to Emily Fear for her time. When I asked Emily for signature cocktail flavors, she said she avoids rum and most sugar-heavy liqueurs and loves bourbon, and that probably the cocktail she opts for when she can drink is a Kentucky Mule, which is ginger beer and bourbon. Also, she can't drink right now because she's eight months pregnant. Well, I can certainly work with that, Emily, and I can find you something that once you've had the baby, and gosh, you may have had the baby by now, I'm not even sure. Once you want to have that celebratory drink, I've got something lined up for you. And we've called it the Shelby. In a shaker with ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of cold brew coffee liqueur, I'd recommend Mr. Black if you can get it, one ounce of pineapple juice, and half an ounce of lime juice. Shake vigorously to combine, and strain into a double rocks glass. Top up with three ounces of ginger beer and garnish with a wedge of lime. A hazy drink that will have people dying to join you. Enjoy. The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You might have seen this on my Twitter, but we just found out yesterday we're going to have to move in like 28 days, which is going to suck and will probably cost a lot of money. Patrons get access to bonus cocktail recipes, can get physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. In fact, I am going to pledge a cocktail recipe a week for the entire month of February. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating and help people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used in the show, all the way back to episode one, including this one. 
That's right, it's Pittsburgh's foremost two-accordion-one-guitar trio, Bitter Whiskers. Why don't you go to their band camp and buy some of their music? It's good. I like it a lot. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, it's the return of Dan Mulcairin. And we're going to talk about Skeletor's bok choy. No, really. Join me, won't you? The top heel in one of our locals, when he was still the title holder, he got chopped by a baby that was being held by Tommy Dreamer. (laughs) I remember having this moment of just like, Tommy Dreamer's holding, like, he wasn't a baby baby. He was probably like a two-year-old but he was holding this like toddler and like the toddler like chopped this local heel which was kind of great i just remember having this moment of being like wow wrestling's real cool (laughs) well you gotta think whoever is holding that toddler it's it's like an empowering thing where it's like oh you know the essence of that person will flow into that toddler and so i presume that toddler in that moment got some kind of archaic views on wrestling but also (laughs) got the power to both take and give a very strong hit yeah, exactly. The toddler got to be both like weapon and punishment delivery, which is, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like it's an apt state for a toddler.